Welcome to the Shoulder Physio Podcast, a podcast dedicated to exploring meaningful topics in musculoskeletal healthcare. I'm your host, Jared Powell. Before we begin, the primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The views expressed in this podcast by myself and any guests are information only. Do not constitute professional advice and are general in nature. If you act on the basis of any podcast episode, you should obtain specific advice from a qualified health professional before proceeding. G'day. For this episode, we're inverting things. Instead of me interviewing, I will be the interviewee. Emily and Andrew from the Knowledge Exchange ask me some probing and thoughtful questions about shoulder pain. Who would have thought? With a particular emphasis on my qualitative paper that has just been published in the Physical Therapy Journal. Exercise is an obvious and widely utilized treatment for shoulder pain, but does it work for all people at all times? Or, like everything in biology, does it depend on the individual scenario? Listen on to hear me bang on about the importance of my own research. Forgive me in advance. Before we start the podcast, a quick note from our sponsor, Clinico. Clinico is a practice management software that's used by 65,000 practitioners worldwide. It's great for busy physios, which is why it's an endorsed partner of the Australian Physiotherapy Association and the Chartered Society of Physiotherapy in the UK. You'll find everything you need to run a successful physio practice in one place, like treatment notes, digital forms, online booking tools, customizable body charts, and much more. Clinico meets privacy legislation for Australia, the UK, the US, and Canada. So wherever you're based, Clinico will help keep you compliant. Charitable donations and giving back are a big part of Clinico. A minimum of 2% of all Clinico subscriptions are donated to charity each month, which means more than 1 million Australian dollars in total has been donated since Clinico was founded. Shoulder Physio podcast listeners can get 60 days for free. Signing up takes less time than this message. Visit clinico.com forward slash shoulder hyphen physio. Without any further delay, I bring to you my conversation featuring myself and Emily and Andrew from the Knowledge Exchange. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. Today, your hosts will be Andrew and Emily. Andrew and I will be pushing Dan off to the side and taking over the Knowledge Exchange podcast once a month to dive into a hot topic with a key researcher in the field. For those of you who don't know, the Knowledge Exchange is a clinical education company running courses and mentorships designed to guide and support clinicians in private practice to feel more confident in applying person-centered care. So our first research review topic is on shoulder pain, and we'll look at surgery versus placebo, we'll look at specific versus general exercise, exercise compared to manual therapy, and we'll delve into patient experiences. And today, to help us better understand patients' lived experiences with shoulder pain, we have the one and only shoulder physio, Jared Powell, with us. G'day, g'day. Hi, Emily. Hi, Andrew. Thanks for the invitation. I'm really looking forward to having a chat about my own research, which uh, I arrogantly like to do, but don't get the invite to do often. So thank you. Excellent. Thank you so much for being here, Jared. Now, We do have a little bit to say on you first, just to let everybody know kind of a little bit more on what you do specifically. And to introduce you, um, you're an experienced musculoskeletal physiotherapist from Queensland, Australia, and you have an interest in the, quote, shoulder complex, right? And currently you're studying a PhD in this area at Bond University, where you also maintain a visiting lecture position. So... Jared, you've written several book chapters, peer-reviewed articles, and presented at various conferences on a wide variety of topics, including frozen shoulder, rotator cuff-related shoulder pain, and shoulder instability. You're a clinician and scientist, and you run a unique online telehealth shoulder practice, which is very interesting. We'd love to hear all about it. But today, Em, do you want to give a broad overview of kind of what it might look like and what we might run through? So today we will be going over what we know in the shoulder pain literature currently. We will be covering Jared's recent paper on patient experiences, um, the clinical takeaways from that paper, and how those takeaways might look like in practice. Jared, can you give the audience a little bit of context of where the shoulder pain research is at currently and where your work is more broadly? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, shoulder pain research is 
it's in a funny place. It's come a long way over the last five to 10 years, but it's still, I, in my opinion, lagging behind low back pain and maybe osteoarthritis by 15, 20 years in terms of where we're at. So we're just coming out of like an obsession with shoulder impingement, which we were in somewhat of a nightmare for 50 odd years where shoulder impingement was the prevailing model of shoulder pain. And over the last decade, we've, we've started to challenge and almost refute that diagnosis, which is, has a lot of implications for clinicians. We kind of need another podcast to talk about that, so we won't go too deep on that. In addition, like we've been testing a bunch of different interventions for shoulder pain for 30, 40, 50 years, essentially since the start of evidence-based practice really began in the 70s and the 80s. And what what we've found over this time in testing a bunch of different interventions is that they're all kind of equivalent to each other. So we know that a lot of things can work for shoulder pain. I like to refer to it as rotator cuff related shoulder pain, which is what we used to call shoulder impingement. And a lot of interventions can kind of help, you know, manual therapy can help, exercise can help. My bias is to provide exercise and prescribe exercise. And perhaps we'll talk about that a little bit later, but acupuncture can help, dry needling can help, even electrotherapy modalities can help in the right person. So it all kind of helps. And exercise has this reputation as being superior compared to these other interventions. But when you actually look at the cold heart, the cold hearted data that is out there, which you know is not meant to care about your feelings, uh, exercise is really no better than some of these other treatments, which I think is a bit of an eye opener and is a little bit of, it makes you challenge your own biases, especially because you you guys are EPs, exercise professionals. I assume you like exercise and you, you use exercise on a daily basis, you know, but it's not the be all and end all. I, mean, I think that's important. So, so that kind of led me, partially led me into my research. I was interested in investigating exercise. And another thing that I noticed was that Okay, we, we know that a lot of interventions can work for exercise. So we know that if you, oh, sorry, can work for shoulder pain. If you prescribe exercise, for example, you say, here's a person with shoulder pain, do this exercise program for three months. And then we check back in three months later, that person has improved pain scores, they have better function, and they're perhaps back to the meaningful or valued activity, playing tennis or something like that. So we know that something happened, right, with that intervention. And if it's a randomized control trial, hopefully there's a control group or there will be a control group. And if that control group is natural history or supervised neglect or something like that, and we see that exercise had a, had a meaningful difference in terms of being better between the control group, then we can sort of say with confidence, depending on how big the effect size is, that exercise did something. But what we can't say with a randomized control trial is how exercise led to a reduction in pain or an improvement in, in function. In other words, what were the causal mechanisms underpinning exercise that led to a reduction in pain? So when we look at the shoulder pain literature, especially in regards to exercise or really any treatment, but my focus is exercise, we have no idea how exercise works. Like literally none. We, we can speculate and often in, in clinical trials, there's a lot of speculation about how exercise works. And then I, in, in, in one of my reviews, I, I went through and actually collated all of the speculative theories as to why exercise might work for shoulder pain. And there's like 30, 32 or 33 different proposed causal mechanisms for why exercise works. And like 90 to 95% of those are biomechanical or biomedical in nature. So overwhelmingly, we have a theory that exercise works by increasing strength or improving scapular control, but we haven't really tested it. So, you know, we, we, how you would test it is with a mediation analysis typically, and that's usually like an adjunct to a randomized controlled trial. It's a secondary analysis typically where you would actually deconstruct how an exercise program might help someone with shoulder pain. And there's only two of those that exist in shoulder pain, which is pretty poor. There's, there's, there's many more that exist in, in low back pain and, and osteoarthritis. So in summary, the shoulder pain uh, literature is in a, in a funny spot. We're getting better. We're starting to actually understand that we might need to investigate causal mechanisms and not just describe that something happened. And we're doing this via mediation analysis. At the moment, we're still in its infancy, but hopefully over the next five to 10 years, we've got a lot more knowledge. 
Love it. Such a great overview. And if I can just talk to kind of your last two or three publications as well, I love how you did that. You scoped everything. You're like, okay, well, what is it that we think is happening? And then you ask some questions from clinicians by doing a survey next after that. And then you finally ended up at doing a qualitative study, looking at those causal mechanisms, or at least what people thought were the causal mechanisms, right? And I'd love to go into that of your recent paper, the one um, restoring that faith in my shoulder. Love that as a title, I must say. Excellent, because it really shows the emotion and of what people need more of straight away. Um, so could you maybe bring us through that methodology of that paper and kind of why you use that and investigated into those causes and conditions that you ended up putting into all these different themes? Yeah, yeah, no worries. Yeah, it's a good title. So restoring that face in my shoulder was a quote from a patient and it really just resonated with me. And I think a lot of patients can resonate with that as well. And it goes beyond just the biomechanical and it really acknowledges, as you said, the emotion and the and the feeling associated with with getting better, you know? Anyway, so that's that's besides the point. But picking a title is a really important um, part of doing a PhD. So you guys might want to consider that because honestly, the more captivating and perhaps viral it goes, the better. Apparently, like perversely for your um for your research. Anyway, what what were you asking? So why did I pick the method? Yeah, so so I picked a kind of left field uh, research paradigm, which is which is a critical realist. Um, philosophy of science, which perhaps listeners don't know much about, and I'll try and keep it basic. So usually when you do a thematic analysis um, type of qualitative research, you will do the classic reflexive thematic analysis, which was proposed by Brown and Clark in 2006, which is what everyone quotes and references and cites in their in their papers in physiotherapy and allied health in general. And I think if you look on uh, Google Scholar or whatever your preferred medium is or checking research, that paper has like nearly 200,000 citations, that Brown and Clark 2006 paper. So that shows you how many people have used reflexive thematic analysis over the last 15, 15 years. Anyway, so I kind of like to do things a little bit differently. So, And also I was asking a causal question, right? And that's super important. So a critical realist method or methodology is proposed as being a useful paradigm to use in qualitative research when you're asking a causal question. What critical realism is, it's a realist ontology. And so what that means is that you think there is some, there is an independent reality out there in the world that is separate from you and me and everybody else, like separate from our our viewpoint, our mental, our mental life effectively. So there's something out there that we can study and we can find out about. That's that's what a realist ontology is. And I and that's my personal belief as well, which is which is kind of good. So there's a, a synergy between my personal belief and and the method that I use, which I think is important. But then the, the crucial difference is between uh, a critical realist method methodology and perhaps a positivist methodology, which is common in quant well, the only quantitative philosophy that, that you can really use is that it has a a relativist epistemology. So, so whilst we we think that there is an independent reality out there, a critical realist philosophy of science emphasizes that or proposes that many people will come to sort of different different interpretations or different perspectives of that reality. So that's different to a, a positivist account. It's also different to a, a pure relativist account as well, where it's like. There is no reality, and then everybody has their own different interpretations of their individual reality. So, in essence, I used a critical realist method because it, it's it's meant to be good for asking causal questions in, in qualitative research. And my question was, how do people with rotator cuff related shoulder pain perceive exercise to have been beneficial or not for them? Which is a which is a causal question. And basically, I used that method to figure out and compile themes which were causal explanations as to why they believe exercise helped or didn't help them and then another really cool part of critical realism is that it appreciates context and so what were what were the contextual features of these people's individuals individual experiences that promoted or inhibited 
the the causal mechanisms or causal explanations that they proposed or communicated to us. So like the context is hugely important for me. And I really wanted to tease that out, which is often what you can't get in large data sets, randomized control trials, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, that is such an interesting viewpoint to have. And it's so different to maybe traditional physio EP uh, research. So based on that, what did you end up finding? What were the causal links? Hey guys, Jared here. I'm stealing you away from the pod for exactly 30 seconds. I want to inform you about my online course on shoulder pain. It is a comprehensive 16-hour course that is broken up into digestible chunks that you can complete at your own pace. You also have access to the course forever or for as long as the internet exists. Thousands of clinicians have graduated from the course from 50 unique countries around the world. If you want more info, check out the show notes or my website, shoulderphysio.com, and I'll see you in the lectures. I think before we even repeat that question, uh, I want to say that we did speak a lot about uh, methodology there, and there were some big words. So we will be including infographics that are going to map it out and display a little bit more of what Jared's just gone over, because I know that can be really um, demanding on the brain to to think about. but let's dive into those results, right, Em? Um, you can go ahead, ask the question again, where were we at? Yeah, so based on the methodology and the interviews and the analysis, what did the results come up with? What sort of causal links did you find? Yeah, so great question. It found, well, we've, I don't know if we say we can found, but we... That's a quantitative uh, sentence right there. We uncovered. Yeah. So, yeah, we, at the end of our study, we concluded that crucially, there were three common conditions that that were really important for exercise to have causal power in producing a positive clinical outcome. And that might be reduced pain, improved shoulder function, or returning to tennis or surfing or something like that. And these three conditions, which had to be there fully or partially in order to have a a positive clinical outcome. Number one was a strong therapeutic relationship. And this was overwhelmingly the most common. Every single participant that we interviewed mentioned the importance of a therapeutic relationship. If that was there, that was often the foundation for a positive experience with exercise. If a therapeutic relationship, uh, a strong therapeutic relationship was not established or absent or it was strained, then often that participant would not go back to that therapist for obvious reasons or would not trust or perform the exercises that they prescribed. And we've probably all had that experience before. So that's I know that it's common sense and people might be like, oh, well, obviously, but it's really good to have that formalized in, in a scientific paper that we can now reference. Another, another common condition was that of the perceived importance of an individualized and tailored exercise program. And not just giving someone a generic handout of exercises that you print off your computer and you say, yeah, let's just do one, two, and three. And then you don't go out and test those exercises or experiment with those exercises and see how they actually feel. So participants overwhelmingly wanted an individualized, a fit for purpose uh, exercise program that they felt was specific to their needs and their goals. Again, kind of obvious, but it's good to kind of tease these things out again. And then the last one was, and this is again, obvious but they wanted exercise to help them quickly, right? They wanted to see progress quickly. They didn't want to just be fiddling away with doing these exercises for a year or two and seeing no progress. They wanted timely and tangible progress in their symptoms. So they were the three major conditions that needed to be present partially or fully in order for exercise to help someone. And then if those conditions were present, then these conditions often triggered uh, three causal mechanisms, and these were often shoulder strength. So shoulder strength has been a an interest of mine in, in my research for four or five years now. And I published a, an editorial a few years ago in JOSBT, kind of challenging whether you need to actually get strong in order to, to get better with an exercise program. And I kind of, I, I stand by that editorial. But it's interesting to me to kind of reflect on that. And now I see patients who believe that they are getting stronger. And so should I actually emphasize that, yeah, look, this will get you stronger and therefore 
if you get stronger, you will have a positive clinical outcome. So should I accentuate that messaging in my clinical practice or should I be a firm empiricist and say, well, there's no evidence that you're going to get stronger. So therefore, don't worry about it. So I'm kind of, there's a tension there that I need to figure out and I haven't fully arrived at an answer, but I'm more amenable to using shoulder strength as a explanation as to why they might improve with exercise than I was before I did this study. So it's been a real... Um, cause for reflection for me doing this research which has been fun another another mechanism or causal explanation which was commonly uh, proposed by participants was that exercise changed or influenced their psycho-emotional status their thoughts their feelings and their behaviors often they said that exercise helped them feel more confident in using their shoulder it reduced their fear in using their shoulder it uh, those were the two overwhelming confidence and fear and then it also it encouraged them to use their shoulder again and not overprotect it and not avoid certain movements. And I, I sort of wrote up in the discussion of the paper that a lot of the participants described this um, expectancy violation uh, type of phenomena where they, they were expecting their shoulder to be sore with a certain movement. Their therapist encouraged them to do the movement in a safe and sort of not controlling manner, just asking, well, what will happen if we try a movement in this way? Can we give it a go? If it's sore, we can change it, so on and so forth. And so the, the, the patient or participant felt really safe and they were heard by their clinician, but then they were surprised that, hey, I'm doing this movement and it's not as sore as I had expected. And so they were in real time sort of updating their beliefs about what that exercise would do for their pain. So that was a really fascinating aspect that participants were, were, were literally telling us. And it really fits into that model of um, expectancy violation and graded exposure, which are common constructs in anxiety in the anxiety literature, but now we're starting to use them in the musculoskeletal literature. And then the final uh, causal explanation that was common was people just believe exercise is good for you. It's like a, it's a universal good. It's like eating a nutritious meal. It's like sleeping eight hours at night. It's like not drinking excessively, smoking excessively, et cetera, et cetera. Exercise is good for us. And so there was this acknowledgement that, hey, exercise is good, so it's got to be doing something good for me. I think that's a common sense approach for people to take. So so yeah, I get a lot to go through there, but exercise, whether it was beneficial or not, was conditional on factors such as a therapeutic relationship. And if those conditions were met, then often Participants thought that shoulder strength, psycho-emotional factors, and the the widespread good and healthy um, connotations of exercise is what improved their shoulder pain. That was excellent. Uh, this is how I can tell you've done great, and you're going to do great at dissemination in the future, because I've read the papers and I understand them, but now I even have an even better understanding. So thank you. Really, six big points there, kind of three preconditions that we can try to meet. Yep. That's the context of the situation from the perceived importance and having a tailored exercise um, program for somebody, having a good therapeutic relationship with them, and then also having that client see timely results. Maybe we can address those three things first and how we can as clinicians set up that context well to have those preconditions uh, because I know there's a lot that goes into we can't just be like, oh, yeah, this is specific for you. But if they don't believe that it's specific for them, is that important too and yeah. things like that? Yeah. So, look, it's hard. I don't have the answers on how to like, make, like optimize the conditions for exercise. I have theories, you know, I have speculations as always. I have conjectures that I can put forward. But I don't know. I'm just a person trying to figure it out as well. Like overwhelmingly, the participants mentioned the word trust. Like just straight up every single, I think like there were 11 participants in the study and all 11 mentioned the word trust in their, in their clinician. So that seems important, like gaining trust from your patient. And I don't I like how to do that. Like be nice, be honest, communicate, remember their name, remember their story, remember their spouse's name, remember their kid's name, you know, like be genuine. I think earning trust, like we can medicalize it, but I think it's just being a decent human. And I, I, don't know, I know that we know what that is. In Like it's hard to describe sometimes, but like earning trust or developing trust, we know what that looks like, if, even if it's hard to describe. So I would say to clinicians, however you can, try and earn that patient's trust. And it's, sometimes it's 
it's really challenging, you know, like especially when perhaps a person, uh, a patient is wanting you to do an intervention that you're not comfortable doing or they're really strict and unerring in their belief as to why they have pain and that they need a particular like medical intervention, a surgery or an injection or something like that. But you know from the evidence that that's perhaps not true. Like how do you how do you get trust without hurting that person's feelings, but also having them understand the reality of that belief? That's that's a challenge, and we all we all struggle with that. I'm sure. Another thing that that the participants said a lot was was communication, like how they communicated my injury, and then how they communicated what I need to go to to do to get better was important a lot of participants mentioned honesty and genuineness and a person who had a bad experience said that their clinician gave them the impression that they just wanted them to keep coming back you know so they weren't really invested in getting them better they were more worried about repeat visits and financial incentives which is which is a shame but we know that that goes on on the daily basis as well so like they're, they're key parts of building trust and, and building a therapeutic relationship. Having empathy um, is another important one. So validate, listen, and not just immediately cut to, I hear what you're saying, but you're wrong. If, they, if they're describing what they think's wrong with their shoulder, you know, like really empathize and say, oh, this is a, we know that shoulder pain is a horrible condition. It impacts all aspects of activities of daily living, so on and so forth. So really, you know, validate that first, validate all the time. And then when it comes to like providing an individualized program, I think a lot of it comes out of how I approach exercise prescription is I go out into the gym and we muck around and experiment with movement and exercise. And you kind of reverse engineer, right? So what does this person want to get back to? And what's a meaningful movement for them? You know, are they trying to play with their grandchildren? Are they trying to pick up groceries? Or are they trying to get back to a sport? Or do they just want basic pain relief? You know, in which case you can do many different exercises. But go out to the gym and experiment. Conduct exercise experiments. Try this movement. How does it feel? How does it make you feel? Like, like, do you have any thoughts and feelings when you're doing this exercise? Does it aggravate your pain? How long does the pain take to go away? What happens if we make a subtle adjustment to the movement? What happens if we do heavier load versus lighter load? What happens if we go through range or or um, at the start of your range? What happens if we do it in this range? So on and so forth. There are almost infinite variables that you can modify in an exercise experiment to really get a deeper understanding into how that person is actually feeling during exercise. Because you, at the end of the day, you want that person to go home and do an exercise program, right? And so you want them to be comfortable. You want them to be involved in the construction of that exercise program, I would think. So they actually know why they are doing it. Because if they don't know the why, then what the hell's the point? You know, because so many times I hear patients come in and go, I had to do this little fiddly thing with a TheraBand or a weight or a dumbbell. I don't know what it's meant to do. I think it's meant to make me stronger because obviously it's resistance exercise, but maybe there's something else it was meant to do. So really try and get that explanation down pat. Now, as as I'm saying that, like, how do we explain exercise given that we don't know? So that's the honesty part. So I actually like to say, well, we don't exactly know how exercise can help you. We know that it could help from a number of different and related biopsychosocial processes. And if it hits any of those processes, then great, then you, then, it, then it might help you, but it might be different for you versus another person. So I like to practice like, like brutal transparency when it comes to that. And yeah, so if you do all of that, you go out in the gym, you you conduct these exercise experiments, then what will happen is naturally, organically, you will develop an individualized program that will be different from the person before and the person after. So it logically follows that you will give someone an individualized and tailored program if you have the time and wherewithal and care factor to actually conduct these type of experiments. And then the final condition was yeah, it's got to help them somewhat quick. Now, this is the hardest, hardest one because there are no guarantees. One exercise might help someone and harm another or have no effect on the next. So it's literally trial and error. And I'm a huge fan of trial and error. In fact, trial and error is what underpins the scientific method. You know, Through error correction, you get closer to something resembling the truth. And I think that's the same in clinic as well, where you all you can do is try a series of exercises or movements 
And if they're not helping, you can try a different series of exercises and movements. Obviously, you're trying to figure out why and you're trying to you're trying to get feedback from the patient. But that's the best way that I think that you can develop, you can help a patient make progress. Now, at the end of the day, maybe it's not exercise that they need as well. And you need to be realistic enough to accept that. And you have to be self-critical enough to accept that perhaps I'm not the person to see this patient or perhaps exercise isn't the medium to help this patient. Maybe they need something else. And for, for me, that's like gotten easier over the years. I'm like 12, 13 years into being a physio. And now I don't like take it personally that someone might need to see somebody else. In fact, I, I'm like more than happy to refer that person to a more appropriate clinician or, or specialist. And so, they're, and so they're, the, they're the conditions, which I think you're asking about. I forgot your question now, Andrew. Sorry, man. You answered it perfectly. Don't worry if you've forgotten anything, because even everything what you of of what you just said and talking to getting timely results, it's interesting because they can all slowly flow into the next three kind of causal mechanisms that people had beliefs in, right? So, what is a result to somebody? Is it, for instance, the shoulder strength? Is it changes in psycho-emotional state? Is it the fact that, hey, exercise is good for your health in this way and you might see changes for your heart, your lungs, your whatever it is? And you can sit down and it sounds like we might need to start really getting good at a lot of different kind of counseling and communication skills as clinicians to tease these things out of people so that we can set up the context and expectations. And then, funnily enough, same word, use expectancy violation theory right, to experiment and tailor something that is really perceived to be individual and beneficial to the client and by the client. Yeah, totally. I just want to go back to what you said there a second ago. You just triggered a thought in my mm, please. Um, chaotic mind about progress. And so we've got literature on progress in terms of like you should give non-surgical interventions three to 12 months before you tried, before it is recommended that you escalate care to surgery or, or some other more interventional treatment. So three to 12 months is a hell of a long time. And it's obviously a, a large confidence interval between three months and 12 months as well. Like, so how do we communicate that to a patient when they want and justifiably they want timely and tangible progress? So this is a game where you've got to be honest and have these challenging conversations that hey you might i know that you want this quick progress and so you should and so do i and so do we all however the reality is when we look at the when we look at the prognosis uh, literature is that it might take three to 12 months and even then maybe only like six out of ten people on average will get better in that time frame and perhaps you're one of those 60% and maybe you'll get better in four weeks or, you know, so like it's really, it's really challenging to inspire belief and inspire a positive expectation in that person that they're going to get better with a non-surgical exercise led approach whilst also paying homage to the sort of literature that suggests that maybe they won't get better actually. And so you're just lying if you're trying to convince this person that they are going to get better. So yeah, it's a real challenge, um, guys. And I don't profess to have all the answers. And in fact, I acknowledge the uncertainty of it and have written, I, I have a paper under review where we're exploring that um, uncertainty that sort of surrounds exercise prescription again, which might be a subject for another day when the paper hopefully gets published. So, so yeah, that's, that's another little tangent on, on progress, which is, which I understand there are immense challenges in the, when you're in day-to-day -day clinical practice in the coalface, which is, e it's easy to write about. Like I can write a sentence about that and it's done because, you know, you cite a couple of things, but when you're living it, right, when you're a clinician and you're living that uncertainty, it's a damn sight harder because you actually have to be the person who's getting that quizzical look from a patient or that like heartbroken look from a patient that, oh, this is like, I've got to have to deal with this pain for like another year perhaps or more. And maybe it won't even help me. So why should I commit to it? You know, so, so they're the real tough moments that I, that I can appreciate because I'm still a clinician and I, I really 
think that researchers in general should be much more lenient and respectful to clinicians who actually have to deal with it. Okay, so moving moving on from that, uh, Andrew, I've forgotten your question again, mate, because this is the my mind is like memento where it's like you just I have these like random outbursts of creativity followed by I've just forgotten everything I just said. So can you help me again? That's absolutely fine, Jad. It's really good. I love the little memento moments. Don't worry. Um, actually, I'm going to pass it to M just in case she has anything to say there. So I really like how you mentioned the difficulties of clinical practice. And that was kind of on my mind on well, my first question and you and Andrew answered it was how would you talk to a patient in terms of prognosis so you answered that my question now is how have patients responded to that and how have you managed that or dealt with it yeah so heterogeneous or heterogeneous how you pronounce the word uh, outcomes when you when you say those things as always is going to be an individual response so i'm in a I'm in a privileged position now because I have a reputation as being a shoulder person. And so people tend to listen to me and I, I acknowledge that privilege that I have straight up and I and not everybody has that. I didn't have it for a number of years. So yeah, I'm not diminishing that I have that privilege, but I'm acknowledging that I have that privilege. And so I people will mostly listen to what I have to say, which is really great. Now, it doesn't mean they agree with it and certainly... I don't have a 100% success rate in helping people with shoulder pain, far from it. So that's that's the reality of it as well. Early in my career, how people would respond how you would expect them to respond when told, well, I don't really know what's causing your pain. I don't know how long it's going to take to get better. It could be anywhere from you could be better tomorrow or, or you could still have it in 12 months or two years. You know, people do not want to hear that. People want, typically they want, they, they want honesty but they also want certainty. And so how you get honesty and certainty in the same sentence is a real struggle because we have no way of being certain given the complex creatures that human beings are and the complex beast that pain is, and that's including shoulder pain. So you can perhaps talk in probabilities, which I've had success with in the past, where you say, you know, you can look at the empirical data out there. And like I said before, there might be, 70 to 80% of people get better with a three-month exercise program, get better, I mean, have tangible improvement with an exercise program versus doing nothing or versus another intervention. We've got a, we've got a fair bit of data on that. So you can, you can quote that for sure, but I, I would provide no guarantees. I would say, however, given the complexity of pain, you might not be better and we might need to check back in frequently to see that you are on the on the improve or do we need do we need to trial some other interventions along the way or do we need to just rubbish exercise completely and try a different treatment yeah and those conversations are, are super challenging and you're always going to get i think subtly you're always going to get different responses from patients when you communicate that uncertainty so just on that again like you can communicate uncertainty and this is a podcast that I did with Natalia Costa recently on uncertainty and she I urge you to listen to it I'm, I'm going to plug my own podcast but more just to listen to Natalia here or just read her papers because uncertainty shouldn't prevent action right so you can be uncertain about exact time frames of recovery and that's that's for sure okay and normal you can give broad outlines like using empirical data that it might take it often takes three to 12 months most people will get better in the first few months though you know or make make progress in the first few months but then you say well but but there are things that we can do along the way like that that doesn't mean we should sit around and and, and twiddle our thumbs there are things that we can trial in the interim and maybe we're not going to arrive at your perfect program or perfect treatment straight away but we should just forget about that uncertainty and crack on and, and start trying some things out and we may be surprised you know you might be feeling a hell of a lot better in a few weeks and if so that's great but what have you got to lose by actually just getting on with doing the treatment or doing the exercise program rather than just being infatuated with the uncertainty that's surrounding the their prognosis and their outcome so that's so so for me a huge part of my practice is uh, acknowledging uncertainty, but not being crippled by it intellectually. 
Yeah, I think that's what you said there is just really helpful and something people can take away because I can imagine clinicians get stuck at that bit of how am I supposed to say the actual prognosis to a patient if that might stop them from coming back and then how if people don't come back, then I don't get financial security. Also, I can't say to someone, you know, this might last 12 months and the patient's like, I can't access treatment for 12 months. So there's like so many other maybe repercussions clinicians might think of when we are honest and upfront with the um, timeline. But you bring that back in what the patients actually want, and that's the therapeutic relationship that's a plan and it's an individualized plan so we can say all that and be like but let's look about what's happening for you and these are the steps that we can take and this is what we can look at while also having that nuance of we're not 100% sure what's going to happen and putting it back on them on are you open for this trial and error ride yeah in amongst the uncertainty yeah that's really well said Emily that's exactly it like embracing uncertainty does not mean like I'm crippled by by this I don't know what to do you know like I like people like uncertainty is genuinely the most uncomfortable feeling in the world for me like like that that's what anxiety is it's like I, I have no idea what my future is going to look like and so that like we should not diminish that but like in patients if they're feeling that but we we need to accept that that is an ever omnipresent reality of of clinical practice that uncertainty but then again there are so many steps that we can take along the way and as you said embrace the wild ride of trial and error that's a really nice way of putting it yeah like that's that's something i'm going to start to use now in my practice well done so i was going to move on andrew do you have anything else to say yeah, yeah. so if there's any other findings that we missed jared just please let us know. I want to kind of bring it all together now and give some takeaways or some practical tips for clinicians for tackling shoulder pain. Well, yeah. Okay. It's a big, uh, big open-ended question. Practical tips. I teach a whole, whole course on this, you know, it takes a whole day. But Let's put a constraint on that maybe, um, like maybe just like two of your top tips that you would say top really tips. improve practice for people yeah. with dealing with shoulder pain. Okay, two top tips. Number one for me, I'm going to go straight to exercise prescription, which I know is skipping a lot of steps along the way, but I can do what I want, you know, freedom, freedom of speech. Um, so I think if you're going to prescribe exercise in your clinical practice, and I'm probably speaking more to physios here, because maybe EPs might be better at it it's conduct these exercise experiments so don't just go to your generic three sets of 10 external rotation program which is to be fair i don't want to rubbish that it's okay it probably helps a lot of people at the start but if people want an individualized program you've got to go out in the gym you've got to put the yards in you've got to put the time in and you've really got to play around or experiment with a bunch of different movements with a bunch of different loads and then get that real-time response from the patient I think you have to do that if you want them to be part of the journey and feel like they're equal partners in the construction of their exercise program. And also that you can feel like they have full, they can comprehend the meaning or the purpose of their program. You know, they're doing this exercise because they might want to get their rotator cuff stronger or doing this exercise might help them confront their feelings of fear or anxiety about moving, so on and so forth. And you, a lot of these things are like, when I'm doing, when I'm in a clinical consult now, so these days I do telehealth and exclusively. So I do one hour consultations and there might be 20 minutes of like chatting at the start. And then it's like, all right, get your weights out and let's, let's play around with some movement. And it's a bit weird on telehealth to start with, to be honest, because you're like, what, what movement do you want me to do? And do you want me to take my shirt off and all this kind of stuff? And it's like a bit, bit creepy sometimes. <laughs> but, um, but you get you get the hang of it. And a lot of it is just playing around with these movements. And you can do it just as well in telehealth uh, versus in person, I've found. And a lot of it is, like I said, just, just trialing out these movements. And then you're creating that exercise program based on the results of that exercise program. So that, that would be my top tip. It would be not just reverting to your tried and tested favorite exercises, although they can help. I know they can help, but if you've got the time, why not just like go out and give that person the 
the feeling that you're really invested in designing an individual program for them. Another tip that I have, and it might be a bit fluffy and a bit generic and a bit like a lot of people have said, but it's like really validate their experience. Like shoulder pain is often diminished compared to low back pain and other and neck pain, for example, or spinal pain in general, because it's a peripheral joint and blah, 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 blah. But we have a ton of like qual research that really shows the the profound impact that an episode of shoulder pain can have on someone's mental health, on their work, on their recreation, on their home life. Um, it can really affect every dimension of someone's quality of life. So a shoulder pain episode, especially when it goes on, right? Because a lot of the time they can, 50% of shoulder pain patients still have pain after a year. And that's a hell of a long time to be experiencing pain. So really have empathy with that. And that will come into that, you know, building a therapeutic relationship, which will down the line help you with your clinical outcomes, I would conjecture. So you can conjecture as much as you want. <laughs> um, so that's awesome. Yeah, really empathize and I want to home in on that point don't just be like oh yeah no I must suck to be in pain no empathize with your client understand yeah. where they are and why they think they're there all of that get better at MI get better at different types of counseling all of it communication it's needed people need to feel validated definitely and then also step away from traditional prescriptions love it that's also very hard I think the first one's harder or well, your second one, the first one I spoke about. <laughs> uh, but okay. Well, with that, I feel like um, unless you have something to crucially say right now, we can kind of wrap it up with one last question. Excellent, so I don't want to keep you here forever, Jared. But you've spoken a lot about uncertainty um, and you mentioned Natalia Costa's name before. I know you two have worked together. Um, kind of where do you see the research going or like your research going next? Um, for shoulder pain? Yeah, so my research is like at the real start of of um, understanding causal mechanisms for shoulder pain. So like ideally, I hope, I hope and maybe I can be involved in it down the line, my research like can be used to actually construct and implement these mediation analyses, which I've mentioned a couple of times, where we actually like try and deconstruct or um, disentangle the causal pathways that exercise works through in order to reduce pain and improve improve shoulder function so like i'm hopefully just laying the groundwork so we can we can we can perform some really good mediation analyses down the line where we test these possible causal mechanisms or mediators of recovery you know is it about getting stronger is it about optimizing scapular movement is it about improving pain self-efficacy is it about reducing kinesiophobia is it about increasing confidence is it about changing the biochemistry of our shoulder is it about systemic inflammation it, i could literally go all day here um we don't know so again speculation and so my my work has been in laying the groundwork and suggesting hypothesized mediators for outcomes based on what patients tell us based on based on what clinicians tell us and based on what the clinical research tells us they're the three arms to that and then to do a randomized controlled trial with a secondary median mediation analysis attached to it you can pick from any one of these putative mediators and then implement implement that in your trial and go from there you know we can we can actually like make inroads into figuring out how it is this this damn exercise works and not just speculate ad infinitum which is okay at the start like i love speculation because that is at its heart the starting point of science but at some point we're going to test it and figure out where we're at wow that sounds juicy <laughs> um and that's a really nice way to wrap everything up because for people that don't know qualitative research is usually the groundwork it's not usually about testing and actually figuring out something but it's actually uncovering and finding what is there to then generate a hypothesis to test and that's where our numbers and our statistics and everything come into play later so that's going to be really awesome yeah like coal, coal research I, I don't i honestly don't think that a paper has been published out before my one that investigated how and why patients think they got better with exercise or not. Like genuinely causal mechanisms had just been proposed via theory, by what we think 
and then tested in a mediation analysis. So like getting the patient's perspective is so important because I think this might be a bit weird and a bit metaphysical, but like they construct their reality to a well, completely actually. And while there is a singular reality out there, like coming back to critical realism, right? Like everybody has a different interpretation of that reality. And so why would we not want to know how people believe they got better or why they didn't get better with exercise when their when their thoughts and their feelings and their expectations are so influential on clinical outcomes? Like it's it's a bit of a surprise to me that it's been neglected for so long. Yeah, for sure. And I can imagine that would be something really helpful to actually ask our patients in clinical practice as well. Like, why do you think that got better? And reflecting on the trial and error that you have done, and then that can even potentially help self-management going forward that they know what's helpful for them, what's not. And just to get an insight on what they are liking about treatment as well. So thank you so much for this chat. Where can people find you to get a bit more information about, obviously, you've got your shoulder course and your Instagram. So, yeah, please plug everything and anything. I'll keep it simple. So shoulderphysio.com, which is a great website URL, is where I'm at. And shoulder underscore physio on Instagram is where I do most of my damage. and yeah that's it so like I, I i do have an online course i do occasionally teach in real life but i got two young kids now and i don't like traveling and being away from them so i don't do much of irl teaching so it's mainly the online stuff these days which is good and i got a podcast as well i've got everything so just go to the website and you'll see where it's at great thank you cheers thank thanks you. guys thank you for listening to this episode of the shoulder physio podcast with yours truly. If you want more information about today's episode, check out our show notes at www.shoulderphysio.com. If you liked what you heard today, don't forget to follow and subscribe on your podcast player of choice and leave a rating or review. It really helps the show reach more people. Thanks for listening. I'll chat to you soon. The Shoulder Physio Podcast would like to acknowledge that this episode was recorded from the lands of the Tiruvallang people. I also acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which each of you are living, learning and working from every day. I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging and celebrate the diversity of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and their ongoing cultures and connections to the lands and waters of Australia.